Well, good afternoon, everyone. It is great to be with you. Um, looking forward again to uh, digging into 1 Thessalonians with you. Today we've reached the last one in our series. Um, this is a brilliant passage. It's all about gospel values. Um, let me begin with an illustration. I wonder if you've ever tried to learn a new language. Some of us did this in school, uh, but we also have people in our congregation who are trying to learn English as a second language. It's very hard at first to learn a new language. And it, isn't it amazing that when we are children, no one has to teach us the rules of grammar? We, we seem to learn the complexity of language just by, very, very naturally, by picking it up as we hear it in our surroundings, don't we, as children? But later on, it's so much harder to learn a new language when, when you're sort of a grown-up or, or a bit older. You have to learn the rules. And in the beginning, if you're anything like me at least, you have to really concentrate, not just knowing the vocab, but translating things bit by bit in your, in your head until you can speak in a way that people can understand. And the idea is that after lots of practice, you begin to become fluent. And you start, people who are good at this tell me that you, you, you can start speaking another language naturally without having to think about it. But what if learning a new language was like learning behavior? I, th I think the environment that we grow up in will, will play a huge part in shaping our values, won't it? If we grow up in an environment that's violent, for example, we'll grow up thinking that that's normal to some degree. Whatever the environment is, we naturally pick things up and we think that that's normal. Well, in, in the last section of this letter, Paul's goal here, I think, in part, is to teach his new friends a new language. I'm not talking about a spoken language, but a language of how to do life together. And the friends that Paul's writing to here, you, you know these now, are, are brand new Christians. The way they've lived up to now is the only language they've ever known. It's the only language that they've absorbed. It's the only way that they know how to live. But suddenly now, they're different. They're new people. There's so much detail in this. In the, Paul packs so much detail into these verses, as we'll see. But the more I've been thinking about this passage this week, the more I'm realising something really obvious. And that is that this is written to be remembered. It's, it's written actually to be read out loud and remembered. Look, Just look down at verse 27. Paul ends this letter by saying to him, I charge you before the Lord. That's a serious charge. To have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. In other words, when you get together as a group, don't just read this letter at home. When you all gather as a group, I charge you before the Lord to read it out loud. And there's something about it that's memorable. 
at first glance, this passage is, I, I want to say it's like a machine gun going off. It's like, doof, 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 doof. That it's, it's what you would call staccato. It's even more obvious in the original Greek. I, I think Jody's version, I don't know which one, I'm reading the NIV, Jody's was slightly different, but you can hear the kind of pithy, short, sharp sentences. You can see it there in verse 14. Warn the idle, encourage the timid, help the weak. Boof, boof, boof. You can see it in verse 16. Be joyful, pray, give thanks. Doof, doof, doof. You can see it a little bit in verse 19 with another quick fire list. Don't quench the spirit's fire. Don't despise prophecy. Test everything. Hold the good. Avoid the evil. I think our English translation makes it sound more wordy than it is in the original Greek. But all of it is like punchy and memorable. Boof, boof, boof. When I was at school, for, for my, my school wasn't a posh school particularly, far from it, but we, I, I did a Latin O level at school. That's the equivalent of a GCSE, if you're not as old as me. This was 35 years ago, and I still remember now the verbs. Get this. Amo, amas, amat, amamus, amatis, amant. How about that? I, I was expecting a bit more of a reaction there. <laughs> what that means is I love, you singly love, he or she loves, we love, you plural love, they love. You know how verbs work. I still remember that. Why do I remember that 35 years later? Because we sat in class and chanted those verb forms until we couldn't forget them. And 35 years later, it's still there on the tip of my tongue. I don't think it's a stretch here in this passage to almost imagine Paul's friends chanting some of these instructions. That's why they're short and pithy. Doof, doof. What, what you can imagine was them repeating it, learning it. These little bursts of phrases are the, the language of a new Christian community. The thinking here is found repeated all over the New Testament. It is almost as if Paul and the other apostles have agreed on a set of basic teachings. And everywhere they go, they give the same Basic, memorable ABCs that were easy to remember, easy to pass on. Doof, doof, doof. But so hard to do. Remember that Paul's friends here are new followers of Jesus. Maybe at first they really had to concentrate. Maybe at first they had to translate things in their head. And get it right, because they weren't used to speaking this new language. But Paul's hope is, as they live together and practice these things, they'll eventually become fluent. And these behaviours will start to become natural and flow from their hearts. Become part of their DNA as a Christian community. The truth is, you know, that these challenging, pithy, new 
radical values actually outlasted the Roman Empire and ultimately changed the world. This is no small thing. So, with that in mind, as we look at this last part of Paul's letter here, my, my simple question this afternoon, and I hope this makes sense, is how do we learn the language of Christian community? How do we learn the rules of grammar? Maybe we've been used to speaking a different language. How do we learn the language of Christian community? Even if it's clunky and hard for us at first, how do we become fluent and natural in living together as Christ's people, as God intended? Well, to help us, I hope, help us understand this passage, I've tried to group Paul's machine gun fire in, in, under four broad headings. So here we are, the, the community and its leadership, the community and its people, the community and its atmosphere, and lastly, the community and its worship. I think these four broad headings will help us to get a sense of what Paul's trying to communicate. When Paul thinks about them as a new, little, fragile Christian group, these four themes are his top four. How should leaders lead? How should we treat different kinds of people? How should we approach life together? And how should we worship God when we meet together like this? Paul packs a lot into a few verses, doesn't he? We've got nowhere near enough time to dig into all the details. So forgive me for that. But let me try and summarise the thrust of Paul's key thought under each one of these headings. So first of all, the community and its leadership. Paul's first appeal is found in verses 12 and 13. Be great if you can keep your finger in the page here. And it relates to leadership, first of all. The key thought here is what I want to call mutual love. Leaders are meant to love people. And those that they serve should, according to Paul, hold them in the highest affectionate regard. Now, the first thing to notice here, I think, is that there's no job titles. Did you notice that when we read, when Jody read to us? There's no job titles here. For Paul, leadership is not about having an office with your name on the door or some kind of title. Titles are important, but for Paul, leaders are not so much defined by having a special name. They're defined by what they are and what they do. And Paul here, notice, defines Christian leadership here. It's not an exhaustive list, but he defines it in three ways here. Hard work, caring oversight, and teaching. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who work hard among you, 
who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Leadership in the church is not about having special privileges. It is sacrificial, hard work. Paul knew that. We've seen some of that as we've gone through this letter. The second thing that Paul says here is an interesting phrase. When Paul talks about those who are over you in the Lord, I, I think we hear that and we tend to think that if someone is over you, they're somehow your boss. But in the ancient world, I, I think this is more nuanced in the ancient world because to be in charge, part of being in charge of other people in the ancient world meant that your job was to look after those under your care and provide for them. I, I think we naturally think in terms of power and can miss the fact that Paul is talking here in terms of responsibility. The real mark of a leader, according to Paul here, is to care for the people that they lead, not to boss them around. That When he talks about those who are over you, he means those who care for you. The third aspect Paul mentions is this strange word, admonish. This is a word, I looked it up in the dictionary actually, I didn't, I didn't write it down, but it, it's something along the lines of challenging and warning and encouraging someone else in a kindly way. That's what it means to admonish. So it includes teaching, but it also means challenging and stretching and correcting even. So that, this is Paul's summary here of Christian leadership. These three things, hard graft, caring responsibility, and to some degree being a good, solid, moral influence. I don't know about you, Paul's language for leadership here does sound to me a lot more like parenting than a company CEO. These are all things that you would describe a parent to, to exhibit, a good parent, wouldn't you? The word respect here in the NIV is also an interesting one. It really means to acknowledge and recognise such leaders. But I don't think Paul here is trying to cultivate a, a sort of personality cult what, what, just notice what Paul actually says. We, we ask you, brothers, to, to know and recognise and acknowledge those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard. Why? And how? In love because of their work. This is not a power thing. It isn't a submission to somehow a higher rank of person. This is a relationship characterised by mutual love and affection. Sometimes we, we just don't like being led, do we? Who are they to tell me what to do? Who do they think they are? Who put them in charge? 
I could do a better job. What Paul encourages this community here to see is godly, healthy leadership motivated by love for others and a willing community who love and appreciate those who work hard to serve them. He sums up this mutual love at the end of verse 13. This is a great motto for a church family. Live in peace with each other. Live in peace with each other. That's Paul's call to this new group of believers. Secondly, let's uh, have a little look at the community and its people. In verse 14, Paul begins a new thought. And again, he directs it to everyone in the community. We urge you, brothers and sisters. What Paul recognises is that different people need handling in different ways. And I want to sum this up with the phrase clear compassion. I, I mean clear in the sense of being firm when, when that's necessary, but always with a spirit of genuine compassion. I think there's a wonderful balance here. Paul says, be kind and sympathetic to everyone, but don't let anyone disrupt this community. And this notice that this is not just the job of the leaders. Paul puts this on everyone. So this is your job. <laughs> this, this is the community's job. All of you together do this. Now, Paul loves it. He seems to love his little groups of three. That's why I have four points. Paul loves his little groups of three. And again, he gives us three examples of different characters who need di distinct responses. In the first, Paul says here in the NIV, warn the idle. Uh, Jody, when he read that, it, it, it was, I, I forget whether it was warned, but it was the unruly. It's a really interesting word. And it hints at the idea of being disruptive. Outside of the Bible, this Greek word was used to describe a maverick soldier who had broken ranks. Imagine a troop or a platoon walking down the road and one of them's doing the ministry of silly walks. You know, it's like that, that's what this word kind of describes. Another way this word was used was to describe a person who disregards the rules in the local gym. How, how amazing is that? The person who shows up late and never puts their stuff away. Rather than using the equipment, this is the kind of person who leans on your equipment and talks your ear off while you're trying to work out. This is the kind of person, you get the idea. Maybe this is the kind of person who is noisy and wants to have a big say, but never actually contributes very much. And Paul says, first of all, be clear, tell such people to behave and get back in line and stop doing the ministry of silly walks. That, that's what he says, warn them. Warn those who are disruptive. Tell them to get back in line. But then Paul immediately goes to the other extreme when he says, here in the NIV, he says, encourage the timid. Some versions say faint-hearted. 
So Paul quickly moves now to speak about people whose confidence is shattered. Maybe through bad experiences. Some of these folks had lost loved ones. We know that as a group they'd faced persecution. There'll be people like this in every group who are easily discouraged and easily frightened. Some people naturally have self-confidence and they seem so self-sufficient, but it's not these people. These are the kind of people who feel that they've got no gifts and nothing to offer. Perhaps they even feel that no one would notice if they weren't even there. Paul wants such people to be welcomed and helped to feel like they really count. Encourage the timid. Paul wants this community to be a place where their gifts can be recognised and appreciated and nurtured and developed. A place where their confidence can be built up, enabling them to contribute to the well-being of the whole community. The third thing Paul says is help the weak. Help the weak. This could be speaking of those who do have faith, but their faith is fragile and weak. And the word help here is a very beautiful word that literally means to hold fast. It's a word of support so that if, if someone was like struggling to walk on their own, this is the kind of word that means to, to, to hold on to them and to carry their weight so that they can walk. So, some of you know that I like scuba diving and um, everyone who dives always has a tank on their back as you'll know but they always have two breathing regulators attached to the tank with a tube one of them goes in your mouth obviously so you can breathe and the other one tucks in your pocket so whenever you dive the idea is that you buddy up with a pal and if you have an issue, if, if your buddy runs out of air, for example, or something goes wrong with their equipment, the idea is that you're keeping an eye on each other, watching you, and you come face to face under the water, you link arms, holding on to each other's elbows, linking arms, and then you give your spare breathing regulator to the other person. And then when you're comfortable and you're both able to breathe, you very slowly together, holding on to each other, slowly go to the surface. It's a beautiful picture of what this verse means. Help the weak, hold them fast, support them. In the Roman world, the weak were despised and dismissed and trodden on. The Christian church was different. Paul urges them to notice the weak, 
to hold fast to them and to help them to breathe. I love the order that Paul gives here. Warn the disruptive and encourage and help the weak. It is tragic that in some churches we get that the wrong way around. Sometimes we can be guilty of burdening the weak and enabling the disruptive ones. Paul says, deal with the disruptor and bless the weak. Very different to the Roman Empire. And Paul sums it all up again with another little phrase. At the end of verse 14, he loves his little groups of three and then a little summary. What does he say there? Be patient with everyone. I think that means having a slow fuse. The opposite of that is to be irritable <laughs> with each other, isn't it? And this, remember, this new group comprised people of different races, different classes. Together they faced the external threat and pressure of persecution. And Paul here urges them not to let anyone disrupt their togetherness while at the same time showing warmth and support to those who struggle. No wonder these communities were so attractive in a surrounding culture that was often brutal. Thirdly, we need to rattle on, the community and its atmosphere. We'll find this in verse 15, down to verse 18. And Paul speaks here a little bit about, more about attitudes. And I want to sum this section up by calling it determined positivity. I, I, what, I'm, what I mean by that is something of a choice. The first thing Paul says is that they must not pay back evil with evil verse 15 make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong perhaps that was the only language they knew isn't this the way the world so often operates someone does me wrong i'm going to do it back paul says if someone does you wrong, don't retaliate by giving them a taste of their own medicine. One of the reasons that I think the apostles seem to have agreed a basic set of ABC teaching is because the whole thing is rooted in Jesus. This is basic Christian teaching that goes right back to Jesus himself. Let me read to you some words of Jesus and just try and sense how shocking <laughs> these words would have been Jesus said but I tell you who hear me love your enemies love your enemies do good 
to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons and daughters of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. This is a community that would be known for its kindness rather than for its vengeance. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 15. Always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Paul says be kind and then keep on being kind and then be kind some more. Then Paul moves on in verse 16 to another little group of three, another little swift, little staccato. Be joyful, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. I think in some ways Paul's friends had every reason to be depressed. Their circumstances were not that great. And I want to be clear here, Paul is not asking them to be plastic or to deny somehow that bad things are bad or that they're not allowed to be sad or to grieve. What he is saying is that they have a new perspective now and they have a choice in how to respond. I think chapter 1 verse 6 hints at this when Paul said right at the beginning, in spite of severe suffering, Severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Despite their circumstances, they've been forgiven. They've been adopted into God's family. They now knew the hope of salvation. They were ultimately secure in Jesus. Paul is urging them to rejoice in the Lord. <laughs> and in the fact that despite the brokenness around them, Nothing can happen to them that will separate them from God's love. God is working out his good purposes for them. Paul therefore urges them to bring their whole lives into the realm of prayer. Pray continually doesn't mean you can't have a job or that you're not to do anything else. What Paul means is to pour out your hearts to him, your fears and hopes and sins. Pray continually, pray without ceasing. Do everything that you do do in a spirit of prayerful dependence on God. Don't forget, some of these people had been pagans. They, they, they were used to praying. Their pagan prayers had all been about persuading various gods to be nice to them. But now they're praying to the living God who is a father to his children. 
And Paul urges them here to be thankful. Not thankful for all circumstances necessarily, but thankful in all circumstances. God does not want his children to be marked by being ungrateful or self-centered, but for them to be overflowing with thankfulness. Paul doesn't want these people to be known for their complaining and criticizing. And he underlines it all quite seriously in verse 18. The end of verse 18, be joyful, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is God's will for you. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. These things are not optional extras, they're choices. This is not to be a miserable, grumpy community. Things were often hard. But they had a warmth and a cheerfulness and a positivity and a generosity that was rooted in God. This is what I mean by atmosphere. This is what Paul wants them to cultivate. Not retaliation or grumbling, but kindness with joyful, prayerful thankfulness to God. What a challenge this is to our hearts. What about the community then and its worship? This is verse 19 to 20, 22. The, these, in Yorkshire parlance, these verses are right tricky. <laughs> um, it definitely seems that Paul is speaking here now about the times when they gather together to worship God, like this. And Paul's point, I think, is that their life together is to be lived in the power of and with the help of the Spirit of God who indwells each one of them. Jesus promised before he ascended to his throne in heaven that the Holy Spirit would be given to his people to be with them individually and corporately. This is, this is not like a human club. The church is a living group of people who are indwelt by God's Spirit. It's very striking that Paul describes the work of God's Spirit like a fire. Verse 19 literally says, don't quench the fire. We had our wreath making even on Friday night and there's a few candles and we're meant to have buckets of water. Paul, Paul, Paul is saying, don't pour cold water on the flames. God's spirit is at work in your hearts, individually, collectively. We can quench that fire with our poor behavior. We can quench it, I think, by approaching our worship in a cold, mechanical, 
dry way? I wonder whether part of the clue to this is found in the next statement when Paul says, don't despise prophecies. Don't treat them with contempt. I, I think we could define, he's not talking here about people standing up and predicting the future. So we, we, we could and should define prophecy as speaking the word of God into the community in order to encourage and build it up. And there is a sense is in, 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 in that that's what we do. Sunday by Sunday, as we gather together, part of what we're doing here is seeking to understand and apply God's word to our hearts. And as we do this, the spirit of God is at work in the hearts of his people. Leaders clearly have a special role in, in that. But, but actually, it's not their words. It's not my words that carry weight. It's God's word that is the power and the authority. And it's actually on all of us together as a community to be continually learning and growing as we speak God's word prophetically into each other's lives. Paul says in these verse 21, test everything. What Paul means is that we, we've, we, we have to bring all of our thinking, our opinions, our conversations, our advice, the weight of our community's wisdom and always be measuring it against what? God's word. <laughs> and the whole tone here, Paul says, is to cling to what is good and to avoid every kind of evil. This is a community task. The picture here is of money changers who are trying to sift out fake currency. Can you picture that? The job of the whole community under God is to become good and fluent in distinguishing what is good and keeping that currency in circulation and getting rid of what is fake and counterfeit and unhelpful. What Paul is describing here is a community that is on fire. Hungry for God. Spiritually receptive and open on the one hand, but not gullible and naive on the other hand. A place where people's voices are heard and valued, but where the most important thing is that the whole group together are humbly growing in hearing God's voice. So, here are some of the basic rules of grammar for this new language that this new community are learning together. Mutual love between leaders and the whole group. Clarity and compassion that is firm with the disruptive and gentle with the weak. An atmosphere of determined positivity in spite of challenges and opposition. And for all to be on fire with spiritual hunger and openness as they worship God and seek him together. These are Paul's ABCs of Christian community. This is the language 
They'd never heard it taught before. And Paul's heart here is for them to be gradually learning this language until it becomes as natural as breathing. How I long with all my heart for our church family at REC to be a living expression of all of this. Let me close with a brief comment on verse 23 and 24. Because here is the community and their God. We've talked about learning a new language being hard and clunky at first. How on earth would these new Christians and how on earth do we here in Rotherham hope to succeed in any of this? And so Paul thus seeks to encourage them that the foundation and the fountain and the source of all of this is not found in them, but in their God. He does it by way of a stunning prayer in verse 23, and then a hugely confident statement in verse 24. What really strikes me about these couple of verses is the complete and utter thoroughness of Paul's language here. What Paul describes here is the entire work of God across their whole lives, over the whole of time, right up until the end. Paul describes God as the God of complete peace. He is the God of salvation and of healing and wholeness. This is a God who has his stuff together but who is able to put us back together. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We called this series The Return of the King partly because all five chapters end with a glorious reference to the second coming of Jesus. All five chapters. And Paul's prayer now, as in the end of chapter 3, is that everything they are as human beings would be brought to complete wholeness until that moment when they can stand before Christ at his coming with no shame or guilt, but blameless. That is the ultimate goal and destiny and hope that this fledgling community has. But Paul doesn't call them and then leave them to their own devices. The most important thing about the church is that it's a community of believers who are sustained day by day and brought to their final glory not by their own willpower and effort but by the faithfulness of God the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. I can be a shocker for starting things that I don't finish. 
Do you, do you know that feeling? But Paul speaks of God here as what we might call the ultimate completer finisher. The one who calls you is faithful. He chose you. He called you. He is at work within you. And the work that he's begun, he will finish. And because he is ever faithful, you will make it to the end. To that great day. What a prayer. And what a confidence. We're done. The last verse is not just tacked on to the end though. All of this is grounded in the love of the Father and the fire of the Spirit. And as Paul says at the end, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ.